everybody, welcome, and thank you so much for coming out here tonight. I'm Tori Bosch, and as you've heard, I'm the editor of Future Tense. We're really excited to co-present uh, this conversation with Zocalo. I'd like to remind everyone that we'll be taking questions after about a 45-minute conversation. So whether you're online or here in person, please start thinking about what you want to ask our fantastic panelists. Uh, now I'm pleased to introduce them. Nani de la Pena is regarded as one of the most influential pioneers in virtual and augmented reality. She was recently named Wall Street Journal Technology Innovator of the Year. A Wired Magazine hashtag make tech human agent of change, Nani has been called the godmother of virtual reality by Engadget and The Guardian. Fast Company named her one of the people who made the world more creative, and CNET has called her one of the 20 most influential Latinos in tech. A New America Fellow and winner of the Knight Innovation Award, Nani is widely credited with creating the genre of immersive journalism. And Dr. Charlton McElwain is the author of Black Software, the Internet and Racial Justice from the Afronet to Black Lives Matter. He is Vice Provost for Faculty Development and Engagement at New York University and Professor of Media, Culture, and Communications at NYU Steinhardt. He works at the intersections of computing technology, race, inequality, and racial justice activism, and has testified before the US House Committee on Financial Services about the impacts of automation and artificial intelligence on the financial services sector. Charlton is also the founder of the Center for Critical Race and Digital Studies. Finally, Ethan Zuckerman is Associate Professor of Public Policy, Information, and Communications at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and the Director of the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure. His research focuses on alternative business and governance models for the internet. He is the author of the 2021 book, Mistrust, How Losing Trust in Institutions Provides Tools to Transform Them, and the 2013 book, Rewire, Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connection, winner of the Zocalo Book Prize. Previously, Ethan directed the Center for Civic Media at MIT and taught at the MIT Media Labs. Thank you all so much for joining us. We're here tonight to talk about how coding has changed and will change humanity um, for better, for worse, or often for both, um, and how the process of coding affects those changes. The conversation, as Ariana said, is inspired by You Are Not Expected to Understand This, How 26 Lines of Code Changed the World. The book is made up of 26 essays by academics, journalists, technologists, activists, and other experts. And each essay is about a line of code. And sometimes that's literal, an actual line of code. And sometimes it's more figurative, something to do with a piece of software or a coding language. Um, and as you'll hear, it covers a huge range of topics. So the software that made the moon landing possible, the Facebook like, the first computer virus, the tracking pixel, the invention of COBOL, uh, and so much more. And the goal of the book is really to help both experts and non-experts think more deeply about the very human decision-making that goes into code. Um, I'd also like to be very clear about one thing. I am not a technical person. I took a single C++ class in high school and was terrible at it and hated it. Um, I only learned HTML so I could create a Backstreet Boys fan site on GeoCities. <laughs> but, I mean, the point here is that you don't have to know how to code to understand why code is important and how the process works. And that's something that's really important for everybody to be able to do since it's just so foundational to the way we live our lives today. 
So much to my joy, Ethan and Charlton both contributed essays to You Are Not Expected to Understand This. So I'd like to start by asking you to each really briefly describe your essay, uh, what the story is, and maybe really briefly what the lesson from it is. Sure. Uh, well, <laughs> Tori, I'm here because I did a very bad thing. Uh, I wrote a piece of code in 1997. Uh, that was really designed to solve a problem. The problem was I was working for GeoCities' main competitor, uh, Tripod. We had 18 million people using our service to put up their Backstreet Boy fan pages. <laughs> Thank you for that. We needed to pay the server bills one way or another. And this was the very dawn of user-created content. And advertisers were very uncomfortable with it. What if you said something slanderous or libelous about the Backstreet Boys? <laughs> Did Procter & Gamble really want to be associated with your content? And so my boss said to me, look, we've got to put ads on these homepages. There's no other way to make money. But we also can't have the ad on the homepage. Can you figure something out? So I wrote a little line of JavaScript and a little piece of server-side Apache code that inserted it into web pages. And what it meant was every time you loaded a homepage on Tripod, you got another window. And that window had some navigation stuff. It had our branding. It told you you could get your own homepage. And it had an ad. And it turned out that our friends over at GeoCities really liked this idea. They took the little innovation that I had made. They stripped everything else out of it. And they just put up the ad. And that's the first pop-up ad. So I'm here because my line of code created the first pop-up ad. And my essay looks at how often it is in code that you have an engineer who's trying to solve a problem and who doesn't bother to think about the assumptions behind the problem. The assumptions behind this problem were that the internet would be supported the same way that television and radio and a lot of magazines are supported, which is by advertising. And in particular, it was gonna be supported the same way that, that broadcast media was. No one was gonna pay for it but we had to find a way to harness people's attention. And it's really hard to think of any way of grabbing someone's attention more directly than a pop-up ad. And the truth is, I've come to think of the advertising model in which we grab attention and monetize it as the original sin of the web. We don't often go back enough and ask the question, is this really how we should support this? So I've been doing penance for more than 20 years now. I now work on questions of whether we should actually support social media in the same way that we support things like public broadcasting, by concluding that this is an essential part of the public sphere. But my essay wants to ask the question, how often do pieces of code, like the code that Charlton's going to talk about, which is a much scarier piece of code than the code that I wrote, how often are engineers solving problems and not doing the work of actually asking, is this the right problem to solve? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great and interesting segue into uh, my contribution, which is uh, called the Police Beat Algorithm. And it's a story of how uh, a little algorithm piece of code, uh, very little known, back in the mid-1960s really set the stage for our current uh, global surveillance infrastructure. Um, and the lesson from it, really, for me, is about not only um, 
the problems of decision making and the unintended consequences often of technology, but in this case, the real intentional consequences of technology. And so going to um, the problem for which this algorithm uh, was devised uh, was to solve a problem that was ostensibly about uh, fighting crime, um, solving crime, preventing crime, um, but the real lesson was in the code. And so I like the way in which uh, we can talk about code and various registers here, not only the zeros and ones, but the code that tells us how we're thinking about, how we're framing the problem for which the computer code uh, is built and meant to solve. And so for this particular instance, I tell the story of how that problem was not a problem of crime, but a problem of black people and the algorithm being devised to try to fix or solve the problem, which was about a group of people starting to amass uh, power and challenge a system. And so how did that then turn into everything that we can think of today uh, from facial recognition systems to racial profiling, uh, how all of that uh, has a straight line back to this police beat algorithm back in 1965. Absolutely. And Nani, you know, you work every day with code up close, so I wonder if you could tell us a case study of some example that you've seen of how code can have unexpected consequences or expected negative consequences. Well, unexpected negative, unexpected negative consequences, yes. So, um, I, when I first started working on this idea of immersive journalism, I uh, had the first VR virtual reality piece at the Sundance Film Festival, and it was about uh, hunger in LA. I wanted to do something about the huge amount of people who were, uh, were amassing in food bank lines, and they were invisible, basically. And so I decided I would try to make it, you know, maybe reach younger audiences, et cetera, et cetera. And um, we were, uh, we, with my intern, recorded audio at food banks until one day she actually came to me and recorded audio of a moment in which a man waiting in a long line who had diabetes didn't get food in time and he dropped into a diabetic coma, right? He did end up being revived and taken away in an ambulance. But I built this thing for $700 of my own money. I was learning how to code. I was begging and borrowing favors to make something in, in the game engine. Um, but I didn't have enough money to do the coding, the motion capture and the cleanup of the coding from after he goes into the coma, the point from there when he gets picked up and put into the ambulance. So if you saw the piece and you hadn't maybe read the blurb, you would think this person has died. And sure enough at Sundance, a bunch of people thought he had died. And that, you know, as a journalist, it's like the worst consequence of what you're trying to write. You know, imagine you just wrote, and then he just laid there. And people think, laid there, did he die? You know, what happened next? And, and, and I just couldn't make that piece of it. And it, it caused a lot of uh, uh, distress for people. And it was pretty, uh, pretty bad. Yeah, that sounds really difficult. You know, so having thought about these three very different examples, which show three very different problems of code, you know, I'm curious if we can zoom out a little bit to the big question here, which is, you know, how coding affects and reflects human values, you know, how is it shaping humanity, which of course is a huge topic, but if you could maybe sum it up in just sort of one thought, what might that be? I'm gonna cheat and use two thoughts. Okay. Um, 
But, but here are the two thoughts on it. The, I spend a lot of my time thinking about social media. And there's a widespread sentiment that social media is bad for us individually, bad for society in general. And one of the hypotheses for why this might be the case are these algorithms around engagement. Um, if Facebook, if TikTok is trying to hold on to your attention for long periods of time, one of the best ways to do that is to give you very strong emotions. And one of the things that we know gives people strong emotions is anger, is uh, passion, uh, is being really pissed off or really excited. Um, and so there's this interesting possibility that the algorithms may be contributing to a culture that was already getting angrier and more hostile. Um, it's complicated, I'm not sure that I fully buy it, but I think there's another way in which we have to take code very seriously, which is locking into place injustices that already exist. Um, I've had a series of students, mostly when I was at Center for Civic Media at MIT, who were looking at racial bias in algorithms, one fashion or another. Um, probably the best known of these, Joy Bullen Winnie, who did some work on facial detection, demonstrating that it was harder for these algorithms to detect darker faces than lighter faces. But the work that honestly has most powerfully affected me um, is work that my student Chelsea Barabbas has been doing um, around bail and sentencing algorithms. And these algorithms are basically trying to learn from the American criminal justice system, take that data as input, and then automate the responses. I don't think anyone in this room believes that the American criminal justice system is devoid of racial bias. And so what's happening is in learning from this data, from an intensely unjust and unfair system, we are now locking into code racial biases that have been plaguing our nation for decades. And so when we look at code, we can't just look at conscious manipulation. We can't just look at Mark Zuckerberg is evil, he's trying to make us angry, he's trying to make us all hate each other so that we spend more time on Facebook. Yeah, maybe that's happening. But even more sinister is what if we try to learn from the last 40 or 50 years of policing and then create automated algorithms that do justice just as well as we do it in America right now. Well, that's not a system that I want to see locked into code. Yeah, and Ethan keeps setting me up very well. I think, <laughs> um, because I, I think what's important for me is really thinking about this relationship between uh, human beings and the social worlds and cultures that we inhabit and the computational piece, the technical piece. And I think what we've done over the years is put the computational piece first. And so if we see a problem, the fix is in the computation, build a better algorithm, remove bias, all of these things where the focal point is really the human being and the context in which we live. And so it's no surprise that human values, human interests end up bake it, baked into these technological products that we make um, because that is fundamentally where we live. And so um, in, in ways that, that Ethan um, said, if we look back on 40 years of policing, it is no wonder that every new form of technology we build in the service of 
criminal justice or policing always seems to have the, uh, the disproportionate harms on the same group of people, the usual suspects, we might say. And similarly, when, um, you know, when you go into some of the uh, Dolly or Midjourney, which are the AI art programs, and you ask for a happy child or a smart woman or you know, any of these kind of positive connotations, it's been trained in, on particular data and it always returns white people, white women, white happy children, white, and you know, I actually said, okay, well, how about an unhappy child in the room? And it was the most scary, distorted, you know, white children, right? So it's like, there is no room for anybody else. It's like the, the algorithms are being trained on the same faces and that's, you know, the one of my, reasons why I'm here at ASU now is to try to see how can we start to shift some of the demographics that basically inform and control uh, this code. What, one of my favorite ironies in this, Nani, is that um, chat GPT, which of course is the, the new hotness, the, the text generator that everyone's sort of experimenting with, um, it's actually much harder to get it to be explicitly racist. You can try to prompted, you can try to sort of say, write me this as if you're a white supremacist, and, and for the most part it won't. It turns out the way that OpenAI is doing this is it is funneling the queries to a team of workers in Nairobi who are getting paid $2 an hour to look through it and essentially say, we're going to get a racist response to this, we're not going to pass this one through in this way. And of course those people will be unemployed even getting $2 an hour because they're going to train the data on their human responses to it. So once the Nairobians are accurately uh, able to detect racism within the queries, then they'll just filter it out algorithmically. I mean, it's interesting if we can go down this road, you, you bring this up and there is, um, in what little sort of uh, fun and experimentation I've been, been doing with this, you see things that don't get through, but then you, you start to see some interesting sort of normative values that come through in the responses, right? Um, and then a need to kind of look beyond that to some of the subtle ways where you can detect some of the biases that are coming through. And so um, in a former life, uh, I worked in politics and did research uh, on how politicians use racial messages to gain political advantage uh, in election contests. And so, um, so I went in and said, you know, give me some ad copy for a, uh, a black person running for political mm. office. And it gave me some things back. And then I did the same for a white person. And so after a while, I asked for this. Give me copy, news copy, about a black candidate who's been accused of a crime. Did the same for the white candidate. And what you see was two things that are the same. The first response is, you know, you really shouldn't be thinking about race when it comes to political candidates. That's not right, and so on and so forth. Thank you. Um, but it still goes on to write the news copy. And what it says about the black candidate is so-and-so was accused of X, Y, and Z, and then the story ends. And for the white candidate, accused of X, Y, Z, and we should really take pause so that we are not um, uh, adversely impacting this person <laughs> should they not be. And so it went out of its way to really <laughs> cultivate a story of let's protect this person in a way that was all sort of left out. Um, and so interesting ways in which these biases come through, even amidst the kind of overt explicit, let's impart some, some normative values here. And, and it's, 
The reflecting the values is one thing, but the way that many people sort of perceive these systems as being somehow pure, right? That these are mathematical, these are technical, that means that they are human free and so are more trustworthy. So I, mean, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that perception of and that oversimplification um, and people's often inability to understand that these systems don't kind of shed the humanity, they just, as you say, reflect it. The company that got away with this more than anybody else is Google. Um, so Google fooled us in a really profound way years and years and years ago where it said, look, we've got these genius PhD students from Stanford. They figured out the best algorithm ever. And now we have a search engine which is giving us categorically, mathematically, provably the right answer to questions. That's bullshit, right? There's enormous amounts of filtering, decision making that goes into Google that goes into everything else. And there's an enormous amount of subjectivity. And Google over time has actually been using this reputation and really sort of working at odds with it, right? Google now promotes its own products very often within the search results. Um, Cory Doctorow has the wonderful term and shitification uh, to sort of explain what's happening to this over time. But Google somehow retains in our minds this idea that it's sort of making objective decisions. There are no objective decisions. There are human beings tuning algorithms for different purposes all the way down. And letting go of that notion that there can be an apolitical technology. There are no apolitical technologies. All technologies have politics. But it's the most amazing marketing job. And Google got away with it for well over a decade until it became increasingly clearer that what we were delivering to each other over social media was getting really nasty and hateful and there must be some thumbs being put on the scale there. We kind of also go fully negative or whatever, or what's complicit in the human spirit. When I talk about like Andy Clark's natural born cyborgs and the humanness of adopting these tools and these technologies, and you know, we're, we're all, you know, from picking up a stick and, and making it become an extension of our arm, we are naturally inclined to do this. So once we know that, that we are really naturally inclined to to uh, utilize these kind of tools and accept and embrace and want to run with them and do with them, you know, where do we find that space to reflect? How do we make sure we have the space to reflect on what that means since we know now, <laughs> right? Since we know now. Well, I'm so glad you asked that because one thing I'm really curious about is computer science education. You know, so what are some of the ways that you think we should be seeing ethics instruction for computer science students, for computer engineering students. Um, you know, and what are you seeing right now? I mean, are schools teaching this? Are they not? Who, who's doing it well? I'm curious. Nobody's doing it well, <laughs> <laughs> from my point of view. My friend, um, Sophia Noble, uh, often makes this statement that you know, if we're gonna train, um, or we've trained a lot of people to think about computer and society or data and society, but they don't know anything about the society part, right? And so we've taught them a lot about computation. They learn their craft, they learn the machinery, the hardware, the software, et cetera. 
but there's a whole education that goes into understanding things like racial divides and biases and so forth. And so if I'm building tools, um, I'm either ignorant of that, or often the kind of hubris we have is folks that say, all right, you know, um, let's solve this problem of racism or homelessness or hunger, et cetera, that has so many dimensions that are complex. Um, and I can do that without knowing anything about homelessness or racism or anything like that. And so I think our computer uh, education in a lot of ways is, um, is just not done correctly, mainly because there is no room for the complexities that lie outside or beyond uh, the computational parts of that. We're starting a program at UMass um, around public interest technology. And this is a term that's starting to emerge for people whose work sort of bridges public policy, social change, and technology. Um, my favorite example of sort of public interest technology and what it's for um, came about when Charlotte Eiffel, who at that point was the head of the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund, came to visit my lab at MIT. And we spent a day together, we talked about algorithmic bias. At a certain point I said, wait a second, you are the most important civil rights lawyer in the United States, why are you hanging out at MIT? And Sherilyn said, look, the black-white racial wealth gap comes almost exclusively from redlining. If I could have fixed redlining in the 1950s, we would have much closer economic equality between black and white America. Redlining's now going to happen algorithmically. I need a generation of people who understand the law, racial bias, and algorithms. And so I have students coming in who basically say, I'm a geek, but I prefer not to be evil. <laughs> or I'd really like to do something about economic equality, and I don't think this is in the econ department. I actually think it's coming from tech. And we're building this coursework, not just out of computer science, but out of everything from the nursing school to the policy school, you know, really sort of taking a whole big state university to try to do it. What's challenging about it is that in computer science departments, it's usually taught as an add-on. And it's sort of like legal ethics, right? You know, you take the bar exam, there's the little one-hour part of it where you do the legal ethics exam where it basically says don't steal from your clients. That's the danger of doing this in computer science. To do it the way Sophia Noble wants us to do it, we actually need students to be liberal arts students. We need them to study larger socio-technical systems, which means they might need to take sociology. They might need to take anthropology. They might need to round themselves significantly more than we're used to teaching people in computer science education. That's my nickname for STEAM, right? Because STEM is what the emphasis is right now. And then if you have the A for arts, but we need the H for humanities. So I've been talking about steam, uh, seriously, <laughs> and um, you know this is a this is a really important question uh, for us. And I do think we can. There are some things we could look at. I, I really believe the journalism code of ethics. If you go to the Society of Professional uh, Journalists, there they have a, a really thoughtful list of of ways to think about beyond you know do no harm, right? Um, and they don't want you to take any individual one on its own. And they know that there can be flawed, 
But I would suggest that it really offers at least some guidelines that we could start to utilize in the way that we approach code. So does that mean requiring a student who's a computer science major to take certain classes? I'm just sort of practically speaking, what does this look like? Well, I, I think it takes more than that. I think it takes a let's go all the way out and think from the very beginning. But that's also the challenge and the problem, right? If I've got a computer science education, I've got requirements, right? I've got curricular requirements, maybe an accrediting agency that says this has to be done, this has to be done. And so all I have time for is the one sort of add-on, right? Or the one token course that's supposed to encapsulate all the world's social problems and sense of ethics into um, you know, a semester's long course. So I think it really means how do we think from the ground up? And maybe it is a new kind of major like thinking about public interest technology in a new way of educating students for the kind of technological uh, context and society that we are living in that doesn't have to start from let's take computer scientists and try to make them into X, Y, and Z. Let's take folks who are coming in and try to uh, get them to think broadly about the world and a set of skills perhaps that can help in the building and maintenance of, of technological systems. And frankly, every city and county should have a technology board, like they have a water board or an ed board. I mean, that's, I feel like at this point, we know after COVID it's become a basic right. And if we're gonna stop that technological redlining, it has to be a really public policy. So, so here's a twist on the story. One of the things that we're seeing in this age of generative AI is people asking AIs to write computer programs. Um, and they're pretty good at it some of the time. Um, you can give a prompt to ChatGPT and often, not always, get code that compiles and runs. And there's folks out there who are trying to build no-code solutions. The idea is that you'll be able to describe what you want a piece of software to do, and you'll have code that can run on a machine based on that set of human description. A lot of what we're doing in computer science departments is training people to go in and write code for Facebook. And one of the interesting possibilities here is that if we're not teaching compiler design, um, because compilers are being designed by ChatGPT, maybe this is a moment where we do view this as a much more complex, nuanced profession. I think there's an argument that we should be teaching more the way that we're teaching medical school, uh, more the way that we're teaching, you know, probably not law school, I think law school still has a long way to go on this, <laughs> but other professions that have a really strong code of ethics, as Nani was suggesting for journalists, that come through all the work you're doing from day one of the training. Tacking it on at the end of it isn't gonna work, but seeing this as a profession where you are responsible to the others in your profession and the society as a whole, maybe that's something we can retune as we're trying to figure out what computer education looks like in the next decade or so. Yeah, I, I was just gonna say that I, I think the difficulty there is sort of the distinction between medical school and what comes out of it, which is a physician perhaps, who is fully in control of being able to not do harm in a way that someone that's coming out and maybe writing computer code is not. If I'm working for uh, a Facebook or another entity where whether I may be doing harm or not, maybe I don't know, even if I do know, the decision may not be mine as to whether this 
goes on or not and continues to get billed or developed and pushed out into the if world. If you're a physician in most American medical practices right now, you don't have a lot of control yeah. over what you do with that job, <laughs> and you are probably causing quite a bit of harm. True, true. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Charlton, because that's something I've been thinking a lot about, which is, so you're a geek who doesn't want to be evil, to use Ethan's coinage. Um, you decide, though, that you're going to give it a shot and work at a big tech company. You, do you have any power to push back? You know, are there ways to sort of push back if you do get the sense that, hey, this project I'm working on seems biased, or I think this is an unfair exploitation of surveillance capitalism, or whatever it may be? You see how that's gone, huh? Yeah. yeah. Anyone who want to take a well You should talk a little bit about it to start with, right? Well, for. Somebody at Google who tried to push back, right? Right, certainly. Timnit Gebru, um, you know, tried to push back um, and push for more equitable AI and for AI to be used in ways that aren't harmful. And um, she says she was fired. Google disagrees, and you know, I think it certainly doesn't look good for Google. Um, but it's optics are pretty bad. Yes, um, it, it's. But I, mean, I guess what I'm curious is, is there any way for a young computer engineer to work for one of these companies? I mean, I think ethically, I think there's a way, and I think you know this is a very, uh, I think complex discussion, at least for me, who coming at it often from the viewpoint of um, students, young folks of color that are going in and working in these companies, and so the choice is, all right, do I go in and build stuff? even though I either know or I come to find out may likely have negative effects on different communities. Um, and then putting the responsibility on them to say either um, uh, speak up and take the risk um, or you can't play in this space, which means you can't get the benefits economically that comes from um, and so I found myself frequently talking to folks and saying, look, you deserve to be able to be and do the work that makes you a good livelihood and gives you the opportunity to play another day, as it were. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's complex, but I think the risk is, um, is real and is there, and I think there's very little power, really, to... Yeah, I, I once had a, a colleague who said that every journalist should have an FU fund for in case they get asked to do something that they don't agree with. Um, and it's sort of, I mean, you can have a healthier FU fund if you're in Silicon Valley than in journalism, certainly. <laughs> One thing that's promising is that we are seeing waves of young people looking at alternative visions of what technology could do. Um, in the wake of Elon Musk's enormously successful takeover of Twitter and the ways in which that site has gotten better and better every single day, there's a lot of people right now experimenting with alternative models of social media like the Fediverse. The problem in many cases is that there's no money for it. And one of the radical suggestions I'm gonna put on the table is that you're, we're looking in the wrong place. Um, we have, for the last 20 years, tried to bring everybody online and into conversation by seizing their attention and selling it to the highest bidder. And that hasn't worked super well. Um, I'm spending a lot of my time lately in Europe, and I'm spending it mostly with public broadcasters. And they're trying to figure out what's their mission um, in a world of TikTok and YouTube. 
um, their mission is to try to create a healthy public sphere. And a healthy public sphere might mean spaces in which we have conversations about the future that are more like Mastodon and a lot less like Twitter. So I'm really interested if there's a potential future where a young person of color who wants to be a software developer could have that alternative of going and working for PBS or NPR or the different European equivalents to build the sort of systems that we actually need rather than the ones that we're stuck with right now. Now, I've just laid four different layers of idealism on a very less than ideal situation, but those are some of the scenarios that allow me to keep showing up for work each day. Mm -hmm. But again, I'm talking about the kind, and I believe all of that in terms of having these alternatives, but I'm also trying not to set aside the alternative that yeah. means I want to build software and make a shit ton of money, Yep. right? And so all of a sudden we get to a place where there are a critical mass of people of color building technology at the same time that we're saying, eh, let's now all do this for the public good and maybe do it where there's less profit motive and interest. Um, not that I don't believe that sure. that's what we need, yeah, fair enough. Um, but how do we do both of those yep. things in a way? They say once the women started becoming doctors, you didn't get paid as much. Once the women, whatever, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I mean, it's that kind of a theme that you're talking about that we have to uh, wrestle with. But it seems to me that within um, people who go off to do that kind of work, if they're properly educated in a more robust way, in the way that Ethan was talking about, that means that when they go to work, if there is something unethical, they may be able to do something about it. And so maybe what we're just thinking about is not necessarily this you know, stroke of a pen or whatever, but this is a larger thing. And we do have to give people the economic resources, but maybe if we send them off in the world with really robust tools, should they find themselves confronting something super unethical that they may be able to help? And, and this is in fact exactly Dr. Gebri's example, right? So you have uh, a brilliant Ethiopian American computer scientist who was looking at large language models. These are exactly the technologies behind things like chat GPT. And she and her colleagues had identified the fact that they had systemic racial and gender biases that ended up coming up through it. That was the paper that got her fired. And it was literally that process of calling it out um, that lost her that job at Google. Part of the good thing behind this is that Dr. Gebru is now running a center around this. And so finding ways to support those people who come through with that really robust education and are able to call out bias in these situations, ensuring that they have a way to land, ensuring that that's not a career-ending decision, that's another part of this equation. Yeah, and just to shift gears a little bit, since we're already starting to run out of time, which seems wild to me, um, you know, one thing I also want to talk about to go back to Ethan's favorite person, Elon Musk, um, is that as he took over Twitter, he started this sort of like hardcore programmer kind of like worship of code, right? So at one point he said that everyone had to print out all of the code they had written in 30 or 60 days and then he made everyone shred it, which is a great use of everybody's time, um, and then sent a sort of follow-up saying that everyone who coded had to send bullet points of what their code commits had achieved in the past six months along with 10 screenshots of the most salient lines of code. Uh, my colleague at Slate, 
uh, Greg Lavallee, you know, pointed out that it's not really a great approach. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why it's so useless to look at code in isolation that way. Elon Musk has done us an enormous favor, which is he has helped demonstrate that billionaires are not necessarily geniuses. Oh. Uh, in fact, <laughs> what he's really helped us do is sort of understand that billionaires are often bullshitters. Um, and that particularly any billionaire who wants to tell you that he knows everything from how to program to how to dig tunnels to launch rockets into outer space um, is talking out his ass. Uh, and, and he's made that extremely clear. And maybe we can finally get over this sort of worship of inevitably white, inevitably male, mm. cocky, you know, investor darlings who end up sucking all the money out of this space. Um, the answer to your actual question, rather than my rant, is code only means something in context. I, I can show you a line of code that I've written that I'm particularly proud of, but unless you know the rest of the system, what it's processing, what the inputs are, what the outputs are, and even then, um, you're going to have to run tests against it. You're going to have to run data against it. You know, we don't read code the way we read poetry. Um, code is really more a matter of seeing how is something working in context. So for everyone in the tech community, the whole notion of print out your code was just hilarious, right? Like there's no way that Musk could know enough about the millions of lines of code that make Twitter work to make that make any sense. Like just in doing that act, he made it clear just how little he knows about what he's actually doing in this space. And this, you know, the idea that even the code itself is going to reflect something, you know, substantial. I mean, you, when, you, when, you, when you go and you look what happened with Amazon, and um, they thought, oh, well, be, you know, we're going to use an AI to, for our employees, and definitely it's going to take the bias out of it and found, why are we hiring all these men? And men were putting on their resumes the words capture and execute, and women weren't putting the words in. So somebody wrote a code that those lines said, look for those words, and it wouldn't really matter if you got the first part of it or the last part of it, you never would have seen the bias. So it's just an absurd notion that just one bullet points are gonna take you anywhere to understanding the, the power of the effects of when it's compiled or whatever. So this is going to be my last question. Um, so whether you're online or here in person, uh, if you have a question, now is the time to start thinking about it and get ready to ask it. Um, so you know we've talked a lot about some really hard things about the way code has affected humanity and the way it will affect humanity. Um, but I hate to end on a really pessimistic note. So um, what are you optimistic about when it comes to the future of software and coding? I'd love to hear from each of you. Oh man, I, the program we're building here is so exciting. We have the most diverse cohort. They're building extraordinary stuff on, you know, investigative pieces about post-Narcon uh, experiences to uh, water to across Shakespeare. So I'm seeing this unbelievable creation happening of storytellers in these new narratives. And I have to say, they just are blowing my mind. So I'm really excited about the kind of stories we're gonna see happen in immersive ways. Charlton? Yeah, one of the, the, the folks I've had the good opportunity to hang out with while I've been here in LA for just a, a little bit of time are folks that are associated with uh, feminist AI. And um, 
and particularly their work with kids. Um, and so one of the things that gives me hope is seeing a generation of kids who are not fraught with everything that's wrong about the world um, and who have found folks that are allowing them the space to imagine, be creative, and give us a blueprint for what could be our future in terms of technology that's radically different from what we have and give us a sense that we don't have to repeat the past in the ways that we so often do. One of the best things about code is that you patch it. It's not set in stone. Um, you don't like how it's running, you write somebody to fix it. And I'm watching very different people step in to fix systems that they often haven't built. Uh, my favorite example of this is Tracy Chu, uh, who has a tool called Block Party. Um, Tracy did some amazing work revealing salary disparity between male and female developers. And uh, as you might have guessed, not everyone on the internet liked that. Uh, and she started getting a lot of hate and abuse. And she started writing tools to fix Twitter to make Twitter a better space for people who are experiencing systemic harassment. And I think this sort of experience of essentially saying, I don't like how that works, and you didn't think about how this was gonna affect me, but you know what, I'm not gonna wait for you to fix it, I'm gonna fix it, that's where I'm getting really excited. I'm really excited about the idea that we can start identifying these problems and that maybe some very different people than the people who cause these problems can be the people who fix them. Well, it's fantastic. It's time for us to close because this has been just a really wonderful and informative conversation. So thank you all so much for that. And thank you to everyone in our audience for joining us tonight. Um, you'll be able to find a summary of this event at zocalopublicsquare.org by tomorrow, plus interviews with all of our panelists. Uh, and you can also subscribe to both Zocalo and Future Tense's newsletters and follow us on Twitter and other social media. And please check out You Are Not Expected to Understand This, How 26 Lines of Code Changed the World, which includes fantastic essays from Charlton and Ethan. And you can find out why it has that provocative title. Uh, we finally invite our in-person audience to stick around for our reception and continue the conversation and keep asking these great folks some great questions. Um, thank you to everyone who joined us online. And Nani, Charlton, and Ethan, thank you again for your conversation. Um, everyone, please give our guests another round of applause. <laughs>